Christians love engaging fantastical worlds, right down to the real world that Jesus calls us to serve. But what kind of world do we truly engage? Do we live in an amazing, positive world where most people think Christianity is great? Or do we live in a world that's neutral toward Christianity, or even a world where most people despise our faith? Our answer to this question will help us stay realistic yet optimistic about how we best engage stories in today's culture. Today's special guest, a recently unmasked superhero from the intellectual light web, joins our quest. Welcome again to Fantastical Truth. This podcast from lorehaven.com helps find the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond. We apply the story's meanings to the real world that our author, Jesus Christ, has called us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett. I'd like to think I'm a part-timer of the intellectual light web, and I'm also the co-author of the nonfiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and my secret identity online, at least in Nintendo Online and Steam and a couple other video game things, is Skull Crazes, which is just an anagram of my name or a rearrangement of the letters. And this is episode 88, and we positively engage culture in a negative world. And we will be talking with Bethel McGrew, who you may know by her secret identity, Esther O'Reilly. I like skull crazes. That, that's very hello fellow gamer kids to me. That sounds very, very, very gamer-like. We're glad that you're here for this episode. It's going to be a long one. It's going to be an interesting one, and it's going to be a hefty one. So brace yourself. Meanwhile, subscribe to Lorehaven. We also have amazing articles coming up as we record. Uh, Marion Jacobs is issuing some discernment ideas for engaging with stories that have fictional magic. We're also going to have uh, Elijah David exploring uh, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the book, not the movie. Uh, of course, we got new podcast episodes every Tuesday and new reviews of great Christian-made fantastical books every Friday. By the way, Zach, uh, before we get started here, we have a special update uh, that I had not planned on making, and it's a little bit of a sad one here. So this is a bit of more of a negative world podcast, and this may be a fruit of that negative world, I'm not sure. It's, it's bad news. Uh, let's just come right out and say it. A couple of months ago, uh, we did an episode with LG McCary, uh, one of our Lorehaven writers who also runs the Instagram account, and her debut novel, That Pale Host, had released. And it is still available, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. But uh, as we found out just within the last week or so, uh, unfortunately, for unknown reasons, uh, that publisher has needed to shut down. Uh, this is just a peril of trying to publish a great fantasy in a, a very competitive market. I'm not sure what else happened there. But I just wanted to give that shout out and encourage people, if you've not bought that pale host just yet, now is the time to do it. Whether it's electronic or get the print edition through Amazon or whatever, uh, this is the time to get that. Uh, we had a great review of that book, not just because Laura works with us. I think it's a great example of Christian social drama with a supernatural edge done right. It's a psychological thriller. We'll link to that episode and the book in our show notes. This is what Laura recently posted on her Facebook and Instagram. She said, quote, I have been so blessed the last few days as so many readers and friends have come forward asking how they can help. So here are my suggestions. First, pray. That's always the best option. And it's free Two, sign up for my email list. We'll skip just a little bit here. We'll post the full version in the show notes. Three, Buy the book before December if you can. Good sales will make the book easier to sell to another publisher. Four, review and rate the book wherever you bought it. 
five, review the book on Goodreads. She goes on to say, thank you for caring about this book and about me. I love my readers so much, and I will never be able to thank you enough for your support and love. Please give Monster Ivy, her publisher, all the love as well. They've been absolutely amazing to work with, and I'm so grateful for them. End quote. We are grateful for you too, Laura. We love you. We're so glad to work with you, and we hope that this story finds a great home. Until then, make sure the existing copies of That Pale Host find a home on your bookshelf. It's a great story. Uh, we want to support that because it is well done, and I think we need more stories like these. Well, I'm really excited to have Esther, a.k.a. Bethel, on the podcast today. I've enjoyed her writing for quite some time, and I like that she talks about topics that not a lot of Christians address, like you mentioned, the intellectual dark web. I can see on her website she's got a review of the uh, the movie Silence that came out a couple of years ago, which is uh, probably a pretty good example of the negative world that we're going to talk about today. And uh, just really enjoy having a very clear thinker and our articulate speaker. So I just realized a moment ago I did some novel marketing for L.G. McCary's book, and that makes me recall our first sponsor for this episode. Once again, the long-running novel marketing podcast from Thomas Umstead Jr. We at Lorehaven enjoy exploring these stories after they're made as fans, but these stories have to come from somewhere. And in order to make them great, you've got to listen to podcasts, resources like the Novel Marketing Podcast. One of my favorite episodes is the Ten Commandments of Book Marketing episode. We will include that link in our show notes. And we've been going through each of these Ten Commandments. This is the final commandment, wrapping them up before Thanksgiving. Commandment number 10. Thou shalt not be false to thine own brand. This is an issue of faithfulness. I love that Ten Commandments uh, language there. Uh, basically, don't commit false testimony against yourself is my interpretation of this. Thomas here goes into the idea, the definition of brand, and talks about how this is not just marketing shtick. This is not just PR. This is the good reputation that an author must build, cultivating expectations among their fans. The books that the author makes are going to be good. They're going to be like this. They're going to be in this genre. Consistency and good reputation are key to this concept. And Thomas even goes into the proverb that some of you all may be thinking of. A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. There's lots of wisdom like this in the Novel Marketing Podcast. That's why we share it, not just because Thomas is sponsoring the show. Go to novelmarketing.com or look for the podcast on your podcast streamer. And again, find that link in the show notes as well as the link lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. From there, I think I hear some 80s action music and uh, the screaming engines of a particular time-traveling vehicle outside the studio. So I want to open the door and see how Bethel chose to arrive. The Bethel McGrew, codename Esther O'Reilly, is on the way. I understand that she is arriving via DeLorean time machine. She holds a PhD in mathematics, although she prefers not to call herself a mathematician. By day, she teaches algebra to high schoolers. But by night, she is a widely published freelance writer and social critic. With words in outlets like The Spectator, First Things, The American Conservative, Plow, and more. She's also a repeat guest on the Unbelievable radio show. I should say that Unbelievable, where she's engaged popular atheist figures like James Lindsay and Douglas Murray. She maintains a substack further up and occasionally updates her Pathos blog, Young Fogey. 
Esther, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sorry, I just used you. I just dead named you. <laughs> your Bethel McGrew has recently uh, unveiled uh, your your secret identity all along. So thanks for yes, uh, taking I am. Mary in Indoor Studio. Let's get through the concession stand real quick. Uh, we wanted to do this while she was here so we could all partake in these goodies together. If you prefer, the more healthful snacks are on that end of the stand, uh, but over here are the candy bars and things left over from Halloween. Uh, this episode will touch on political issues just a little bit, just a little bit. Issues, not parties or persons, but we know that the word political just means public. This is just related to the public stuff, which includes culture and how Christians engage culture. And like our other episodes about engaging popular culture, I think this one is a little bit more foundational. So not so much fantastical, but a little bit more truth. Some of those bigger issues underneath the issues of engaging fantastical stories. By the way, we also will mess with basically everybody's assumptions about how we do this, including our own assumptions. But we do assume, although we do not defend necessarily here, ideas like the gospel and missions. We're just going to assume that those are what Christians believe and then work our way out from there. We may also assume labels, even like the controversial term woke, to mean a particular kind of system of fairly religious ideas. However, not every anti-woke person is a Christian. We know that. But some are, including our guest. And we're also bouncing off this article, an article from a website called American Reformer, that asks how Christians should engage the kind of world that we live in. Uh, before we get started with Bethel, I just want to quote from that article really quickly, and we'll have that in our show notes. So just to summarize this article, and we'll have the, the whole quote in the show notes, uh, this writer says that the world has understood the church, at least in the United States, in three general ways. He says that before 1994, most people in culture had a positive outlook on Christianity and Christian morality. Interestingly, he kind of cuts that off in 1994 uh, and then says that from that year to 2014, so for 20 years, he said we lived in a neutral world. Uh, that's where most people didn't hate Christianity, didn't hate the biblical worldviews, but just kind of a more neutral outlook. If you've ever heard the lines from Christian apologists who say, well, there's a moral relativism and then most people will say that you do your thing and I'll do my thing and we just need to learn to live with each other. Like you need to help them understand that, you know, Jesus was real and the gospel is true. Like, you know, and there is absolute morality. That kind of language is how people engage with the neutral world. But this author argues that we are now living in a negative world from about the year 2014 onward. And he says, quote, in this world, being a Christian is now a social negative, especially in high status positions. Christianity in many ways is seen as undermining the social good. Christian morality is expressly repudiated, end quote. And Zach and uh, Bethel, you know, we've gotten into that in some of our recent episodes of Fantastical Truth, trying not to be fantastical in how we look at the world and dress it up into some kind of sentimental society where if Christians are just really, really good or really, really make the best stories or just really, really behave ourselves, then everybody will at least tolerate us in the neutral world. Or we may even go back to the positive world where most people were okay with Christians. I think that's not the world that we're in now. And that's what we're going to get into in these uh, follow-up points. So anybody got any thoughts on that just before we, we get started with the, with the big discussion here? Yeah, that's really true. I just now skimmed that American Reformer article for the first time, and it looks like a pretty accurate way of, of laying things out. And it's interesting. I, I see Rod Draher name chat here, and, and I see how it talks about how the culture war people were trying to 
recapture some of the old magic or the old alliances by putting all their chips on Trump, which wound up being a disaster. But then that in turn, like the Trump derangement syndrome has fueled the people who are still living in neutral world, as you say. So yeah, lots of, lots of good things to unpack there. Yeah. The thing that really stood out to me is that the evangelical establishment appears to be in deep denial about the new negative world in which we live. And I, I think that is really what the schism is about in the church right now. I think everyone realizes something has changed, but maybe doesn't agree to what extent it's changed. But I would also say that nothing's really changed because Christianity has always undermined what the quote public good is. I mean, you look, you look back in the first century and what the Roman Empire considered the public good was diametrically opposed to what Christians believed and what Christians practiced. And so, you know, Christians were called atheists because they, they didn't believe in God the same way the Romans did. The Romans had no idea what to do with the Christians at first. Uh, and then, of course, they were, they were persecuted horribly by the whole world. And, and Jesus predicted this. He said, you will be hated by all men because of me. That's an uncomfortable truth that we don't talk about enough. Or people put it on too much as like a, their, their Twitter identity. And like a, a lot of people like to be hated, you know, on Twitter especially. But you know, Christianity has always been unpopular to some extent in every culture, in every century. We don't know how to grasp even that in a historical sense. Well, that leads us to chapter one of our three-part discussion here. How have Christians engaged culture in a positive world? So again, understanding this, uh, this I think, bygone age where most people at least felt that if you were a Christian or you went to church uh, or you gave to Christian charities, things like that, you know, everybody was a Christian or Christian adjacent or churchian or vaguely moral. Uh, this era that may have seemed to have ended in 1994, according to uh, Aaron Wren, uh, the writer from The American Reformer. I think that that's back when Christians assumed ideas that we're a moral majority. Like, you know, some people, maybe our younger listeners may not be familiar, but there was an actual organization uh, in the 80s called The Moral Majority. And that's where you got uh, Jerry Falwell the first and a bunch of other uh, more politically active Christians who are trying to engage culture from this vantage of, you know, most people out there agree with us. It's just that there is an ascendant uh, religion or series of religions that are not so Christian. Uh, and we just need to get out there and raise funds and uh, start our TV networks and start our Christian publishing companies. Because uh, some of the stuff we talked about with Daniel Silliman about uh, reading evangelicals, like some of these books, these early examples of Christian fantastical novels and other novels were associated with this kind of culture. The idea that most people like Christianity uh, and may even like Jesus, you know, they may even be Christians and we just need to find them. Uh, and we need to get them voting and we need to get them to help change the society. Uh, I think there's some of that scattered around uh, the world and particularly around the United States now, depending on where you live, like your city, your county, maybe even your state may still be like that. Like Zach and I are from Texas. And I would say that Texas is more neutral, I would think, you know, with with pockets of this positive world. Uh, I don't feel like in my area that if I went out and just told somebody on the street, hey, I go to church every Sunday, I'm a biblical Christian, I believe in the gospel, I don't think they're going to say, oh, you hater, you bigot, you know, I'm going to cancel you. you know, most people are just going to be just okay with that at best, or they're going to say, hey, me too, uh, which is even better. These worlds can overlap, I think, uh, the people who are more positive toward Christianity and culture, the people who are negative, uh, and the people who are kind of in between. And that's why I think it gets difficult when you go out and you start talking about 
you know, Christian leaders, you know, well, they don't understand that we are in a negative world. Like, I think they don't because they're in a little pocket of the world that seems positive or neutral toward Christianity, and they can't seem to see past this pocket of positivity and taking it to uh, our specific interest field here at Fantastical Truth of Christian-made fantastical novels. I do often see some people trying to make or share these kinds of stories who act like we're in a neutral world uh, rather than a negative world. And most of the stories that we share seem not to want to touch on these really negative issues, because if we don't admit that that negativity is there, then we can't confront it. We can't uh, build a better culture uh, or engage the culture that's in front of us. In other words, we have kind of this sentimental view. Any ideas then of like, uh, like uh, Bethel, you, you've been in this, uh, what we call it, the intellectual light web for a while, and we'll talk in a little bit about some of the challenges that that brings, uh, which seems maybe more of a return to that neutral space, by the way, because you've got uh, atheists and classical liberals and other people who are not Christians, who don't believe in Jesus, but who see practical value in the faith. Like, have you seen any challenges of doing what you do in a positive world? Because that has issues as well. Well, I mean, of course, me personally, I've only ever grown up in end of neutral to negative world because I was born in 1993. But, you know, it's interesting talking about the moral majority. Those are my roots because, I mean, that was my mom. My mom marched with Phyllis Schlafly. Ronald Reagan was the first president she ever voted for. And then, you know, through the years, mom was was a sort of um, a, a political blogger, pundit, like she never wrote for National Review or anything like that. But I'll talk to people like Dreher or whatever, who'd be like, I read your mom's group blog back in the day. So, <laughs> you know, it was like Savistas or something. Yeah, all of that is really familiar to me. When you ask about the challenges, I can only speak about those secondhand or in hindsight, you know, not like things I've personally encountered. Perhaps one thing I could say is, is that it could be that to some extent, the gospel was not always preached because there was right. an automatic assumption of um, of morality and that that became, you know, the Christian Smith phrase, the moral therapeutic deism, that maybe functionally that was sort of the, the, the petroleum that these kinds of things, that these kinds of churches were running on. That's where perhaps now there's a chance for that to flourish more. But at the same time, it's not helpful at all for certain figures, I don't know if we should name names, but certain figures to take aim at, at Bible Belt religion and to say, well, we don't live in Mayberry anymore. Good riddance. I was thinking Goodbye. about that guy. Yeah. 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 What's yeah. his name? I don't, we, we don't have to. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure. Mr. X. Yeah. Okay. So what we're referring to, <laughs> uh, there are a few, and there's a few Mr. X's. Okay. Mr. and Mrs. or Miss X. Uh, sometimes um, we'll just call them uh, evangelical leaders, uh, I think is uh, is a good way to refer to them. And by the way, I mean, late grab from the concession stand here. Uh, these are brothers and sisters in Christ, so far as we know. You know, nobody's getting shunned or uh, declared a heretic necessarily. But there are people who grew up in this positive world, and they they saw the errors, the problems of assuming the gospel, or even enabling abuse or or political corruption uh, in the name of building this moral majority. And so it seems like these folks cannot see past the hazards associated with the positive world. And they're less familiar with the even often darker hazards in the secular world uh, with, uh, with people who either are indifferent to or who hate Christianity. And so what you'll see is these evangelical leaders seem to be making a career out of exploring the problems with the church, 
or the abuses of you know so and so who fell into the mega church uh, scandal, and that's all they ever talk about. And to, it strikes me as a kind of sentimentality, like you you cannot see past the walls of the church or the walls of your professional ministry circles that you're in. And so you just assume that everything out there is just a bunch of seekers, just a bunch of seekers who just need to see a better Christianity. And if you don't show that, if you don't pick on the abuses and things like that, then these people are going to be lost. Uh, and it's the fault of the bad conservative Christians. And I, I see this mindset sometimes among the creative communities as well. Uh, one thing I noticed not too long ago was you would see Christian authors who said, well, I'm sick and tired of this whole Christian publishing racket. You know, all we do is these shallow stories about Amish and romance and stuff. And like, and I, I, I want to write about the real world. I want to reach those heathens out there. Well, dude, like you are literally assuming that you can climb a mountain and get your fantasy novel published by the big boys uh, when you have not engaged successfully and gotten to know the neighbor's in your conservative community around you. You've, you've got beef with the conservatives around you or the Christians around you, and you assume it's going to be easier out there in the world. Uh, I call that a very insular outlook. I, I think it is a kind of sentimentality of the like of a boomer Christian grandma who wants to hang the Thomas Kincaid cozy cottage painting on her wall. Uh, that's yes. not the real world. You know, uh, Bethel, you and I were joking, I think a few weeks ago, I was, I think I was sending you pictures of the, um, the, the, the Imperial walkers from uh, Star Wars stomping across the thomas kincaid cozy cottage like anytime we try to set up that positive world uh the empire is going to invade and i would rather get ready to confront the empire and do some swashbuckling and hang on to my soul and not become some you know vengeful army i would rather confront the realism of the world so that we can fight against it uh, but still recognize that we are fighting dark spiritual forces ultimately for the fate of the souls of our neighbors. We're not trying to fight them. We're trying to be part of Christ's rescue effort to save them. Right, it, for sure. And I mean, it's like I, I was saying that somebody else was doing an interview with me for his Substack and wanted to talk about this uh, countercultural creatives, whether conservative or Christian creatives. And I was saying, yeah, it's really, really tough because you're going to struggle to, first of all, to get trained because the atmosphere is just so hostile in the arts industry. And then to get your work out there and distributed and finding an audience, um, especially if you don't just want to make safe material. And, you know, there's such a thing as safe material in the Christian context. So, you know, the Amish romance, da da da, that your friend's talking about. But there's also safe material in a secular context, you know, in a woke context. There's certain kinds of narratives, like if you want to write anything about homosexuality, for example. There are very, very safe, pat narratives to go down. Oh, heartwarming coming out story. Yes. You know, Easy everyone. enemies. Right, right. You know, evil, conservative Christian overlords, whatever, repressive, da, da, da. So, you know, that's like the, the secular world's version of the, the Amish romance story in a way. But if you want to be a true artist and write stuff that isn't safe in any world necessarily, you really have your work cut out for you. So it's like I said to this this interviewer, it's tough to be an artist if you're an actual artist. <laughs> yeah. Zach, we would not be Fantastical Truth if we didn't quote Aslan here. Uh, Aslan, like Christ on whom he is modeled, is not safe. He is not tame, but he is good. So we're talking about working for the good here, not just what seems safe. Exactly. 
Stephen, something I'm thinking about is how the we're we're obviously talking about an American context here because the Christian church has been persecuted all over the world, all throughout time, and even now it it's it's definitely a negative world in parts of the world, like uh, China, like the Middle East, and in other parts of uh, Central Asia, North Africa, and you know I've been to some of those uh, countries and I, I've lived in a few of them for for a while, and there can sort of be this romanticizing of the persecuted church or the underground church. I've that, seen that. Yes. That, uh, and I've definitely fallen into this. Like when I've come back, I'm like, Oh, we have it so easy here. And like, you can go, to, you can go to Walmart and get a Bible. You know, you can get one of your gas station. Like you go to these countries and the, you know, you'll get arrested. If you get a, uh, have a Bible, we were reading the story of brother Andrew to our, our girls a couple of years ago. And you know, he goes to this one church uh, behind the Iron Curtain. Um, this is in the, I don't know, six, 70s or 80s. And they only had one Bible for this entire church. And so so they split the the church up into seven small groups of like different families. And each small group would have that Bible for one day of the week. And we just thought, my goodness, like each of us probably has seven Bibles apiece. And there can sort of be this self-loathing that takes place because it's like, oh, you know, we, we have it so good here. Like, and I think that's what makes people focus on the excesses or the weaknesses of the church in the positive world. We have this nostalgia, maybe. As we talked about last week, the, the key solution is thankfulness. You, you can enjoy the world you're in w- without guilt just by being thankful to God for it. Amen. Yeah. If, yeah. If I can jump in there on, on the, the pers- like people contrasting the persecuted church with the American church, uh, Stephen, this bugs both of us, I know, but we'll, we'll see this on Twitter where people will somehow turn it into, turn a persecuted church tweet into a COVID tweet by saying, hey, let's all remember praying and thinking about our Afghani brothers and sisters who are so persecuted, unlike you privileged American Christians who won't just shut up and wear a mask and get vaccinated or whatever. You have it so good. You don't even know. It's like, well, that escalated quickly. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, it's like, look, it is possible. Two things can be true at the same time. You know, it's, yes, yes. it's possible to have a healthy perspective on, okay, yes, I am extraordinarily privileged as an American Christian. Yes. I, I can, can only vaguely understand the hardships of Christians in Africa or the Middle East or these other places. But at the same time, I don't have to trivialize the, you know, some of the the very real struggles that some American Christians still have, uh, you know, in in workplaces, you know, in places where they're being pressed to to compromise. Like, you can be concerned about all of these different things. You don't don't need to virtue signal the course of praying for the persecuted church. I, I don't somehow, I don't think that's what Jesus would do. You know? Right. Well, there's the verse that says, you know, tri- trials and tribulations of all kinds. Right? Yes. And so <laughs> right. there, there's not just one kind of persecution. There's not just one kind of, uh, because even like, you know, I mentioned East Asia and some countries you have, you know, official persecution by the government in other countries you have officially freedom but social persecution and it's actually the social persecution sometimes that's much more effective. Jesus talks about both kinds, all kinds blessed are you. He says, when men utter falsehoods against you and speak evil, 
he's talking almost about cancel culture there and false <laughs> accusations. I mean, and he says, blessed. And he doesn't just say, blessed are you when you, you know, have all your property directly plundered and then you get thrown in prison and possibly executed by the Third Reich. That's also persecution. But persecution is a spectrum and it is perfectly acceptable, as the Apostle Paul did, to stand up for yourself to say, wait a minute, like your own law, Caesar's own law gives me the rights of a Roman citizen. Is it lawful for you to beat a Roman citizen? And in the Apostle Paul's case, in the book of Acts, that stopped them cold. And they managed to get into an appeals process. And in that case, the Apostle Paul had a plan to take the gospel to Rome. And that takes us a little bit further afield. So we're speaking about making stories that will make a difference. And one of those could be our second sponsor for this episode, uh, once again, D.N. Woodward's fantastical novel, A Choice of Blades. This is the description for this story. It's a bit uh, Western flavored here, which intrigues me a bit, especially being a resident of the state of Texas. With no knowledge of his true heritage, a young rancher, Leon Waldman, must forge a bold path for survival when he is tossed into a legendary world of powerful skin changers and deadly creatures of myth. Leon knows the mercenaries have plans that may or may not include him and the others, and the locals prove to be just as dangerous as they look. Come what may, he is determined to stick to a promise made to his grandfather, a promise to find a way home for him and those forced through the portal with him. To do so, he's going to have to push himself in ways he never thought possible, and a simple, bone-handled blade may be the key to either making or breaking that effort. But before he can make good on any promises, he must learn to navigate this new mythical land with a rancher's grit, a unique set of powers, and some new friends along the way. That's the book description. This is an endorsement from Amazon best-selling Western sci-fi author James Haddock, who says, This is a good book. Engaging characters, good pace, good suspense. Sounds good to me. Find the cover, get that full description at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. We will also include that link in the show notes for this episode. Uh, we definitely cross over into talking about, you know, the response to the negative world. Uh, let me steer us back real quick then to chapter two, dun, 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 chapter two of, of this discussion. What did Christians change to engage culture in the neutral world? So we've already talked a little bit about this idea uh, that we're actually living in a culture around us uh, from the TV shows to the political rhetoric uh, to any of the punditry and the philosophy that's going on. Uh, the idea is that most people, if you're a decent sort of Christian, will be just okay with that. And they will pull the relativism rhetoric on you. Well, I'm glad you believe that, but that's not what I believe. And we just need to learn to get along together. Uh, again, this may have been true before, and that was about the time when I was starting to engage with this kinds of stuff uh, in both the nonfiction, the fiction contexts. That's when you would get the apologetics material at your Christian high school or on the yep. internet or wherever. That's where you get the material like, well, you need to learn to engage with moral relativism. And the idea of tolerance is self-defeating. And you can't uh, tolerate intolerance and well, we got them. You know, we, we owned the relative. <laughs> that's is there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a wrap. That's it. You know, they're going to sit there and think about their life choices. So, okay. So if this was true before, then at least this author, uh, Aaron Wren believes that it was true. And he defends why between roughly 1994 and 2014. And I think a lot of us grew up in this context and we learned the ideas of engaging culture in the neutral world. 
And now, as you've already mentioned, uh, Bethel, we, we hear some of this reasoning from well-meaning Christian leaders, I think. And some people will call them Big Eva. Big Eva. And, and it usually is not meant in, a, in a, a praiseworthy sense. Or they will say these folks are elitists, with their, which I think is silly. Elon Musk is an elitist. He's a bit rogue, but he's, you know, he, he uses expensive stuff. He flies around in jets and rocket ships and things. Uh, political leaders and former presidents are elitists. You know, uh, big AAA uh, movie stars are elitists. Our our big Eva, our, the evangelical leaders who do this thing full time, uh, they are not out there sipping the caviar. You know, they may even go to Cracker Barrel. So that was a recent uh, dust up <laughs> over the social media that I'm dipping into there. Uh, but a lot of these folks do inhabit um, a kind of particular environment, uh, either academic environment or professional ministry environment. I've experimented with maybe saying this is the 501c3 class. You know, they, they do professional ministry, uh, unlike every Christian who is in some sense in ministry, no matter what we do, whether you're a plumber or a pastor or a stay-at-home mom. But these folks do this kind of thing full-time, uh, usually in, in some kind of a um, uh, liberal arts-type uh, environment. And I think they still believe that we're living in a neutral world. And for Christian uh, authors or fans of stories who have uh, inherited this view, I'm curious, like, what are some of those ideas of the, of the evangelical leaders who mean well, uh, but who may not be able to look past the boundaries of their own professional ministry circles and see some of the negativity that actually is out there and that needs to be confronted? Uh, Bethel, do you have any thoughts on that? I do, although I actually, could I add like a new dimension to this? Go for it. Okay, because you were talking about apologetics. That's a world that I know really well because my, my parents are, are both apologists, although they're, they're not really, there's a whole story there that I won't get into. But so growing up, like in exactly those years, I think beginning around 2010 was when my folks got involved in apologetics and kind of bringing their academic expertise to bear. So yeah, I saw a lot of those books, a lot of that material about owning relativism. And, uh, you know, here's like the one, two, three steps to engage culture. Yeah, there is no absolute but, truth. Is that absolutely true? Exactly. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, yeah, I know. Right, exactly. All, all of that stuff. So I think in their own way, that this is sort of like a different class yet again from the, the so-called Big Eva class, but in their own way, they've had to sort of shift and adapt. And it's been interesting as I see certain apologetics channels shifting from uh, is Christianity true content to, oh, let's talk about wokeness content because they're sort of recalibrating like, oh no, this is like, things have changed. We got to shift focus because the problem is exactly as you say, that that kind of little judo move or whatever doesn't really work anymore because we're really up against a new, a new absolutism. We're not really up against relativism actually anymore, at least we're up against people who have their own rules of engagement for this. And so increasingly when I listen to so-called deconstruction stories, which I don't like the word deconstruction as an academic meeting. I don't know where it got started. I'm going to say deconversion. That's my preferred term. But when I hear deconversion stories, yeah, I'll hear the usual blah, 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 evolution, blah, 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 you know, Bible not reliable, et cetera, et cetera. But the more they keep talking, the more I realize, actually, though, this is really about morality. This is really, I just, I realized I couldn't hate my gay friends anymore. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So the sort of stock apologetic arguments are not really necessarily going to work. It, like, it's not like they're wrong. It's not like I say, I'm saying you shouldn't try them. It's just that this stuff 
the the cultural stuff, the, the peer pressure, the pressure of outside morality is so powerful that it's it's like a tsunami wave. It's just going to kind of come in and sweep all of that away. So those are my sort of scattered thoughts there. And maybe to sort of tie back into Big Eva a little bit, maybe they don't see the tsunami <laughs> in a way. Yeah, I, I think it's a level of imagination going on here. If, if folks have been trained, uh, especially in, in specialist fields that have to do with the liberal arts or professional ministry, that kind of thing, I think it's possible to get so logical about those things that you forget the role of the imagination in informing these. And yeah. uh, I think er- early last year, actually, Zach, you remember we did that episode about um, who were the two comedians who deconverted? Rhett and, Rhett and Link. Rhett and Link. Yeah. yeah, the Rhett and Link guys. I have and, them in mind. So yeah, that, yeah, well, that's, yeah. that's an example. And we kind of bounced off that as an example. We, we don't know them. You know, I'm a little less familiar with their comedy and their fan base. However, based on what I'd read, it sounded like they had gotten into uh, a lot of apologetic stuff and found it wanting for the reasons that you were just mentioning. Uh, They were concentrating, if they were, on the mind, obviously two very clever chaps, uh, and neglecting the role of the imagination. Someone or a series of stories or culture had come along from the inside, come along all diagonal, really sly-like, uh, and appealed to their hearts rather than their heads. You know, whether it's, you know, will I have some nice uh, gay friends or anything like that? Uh, the imagination is vulnerable if we're only focusing on the mind. And I think that is why Jesus himself always appealed to both. He would ap- appeal to the law, he would appeal to logic, and he would also tell stories. He insisted on hitting both the mind and the heart. And by the way, not in a neutral world, but in a world that he knew was fundamentally opposed to the kingdom. And yet the Holy Spirit is working. And I think it's better for Christian leaders or Christian creators or fans or whomever to be trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to do his thing. Our job is not to win over that person uh, by being winsome or by having the uh, the best argument uh, that will result in uh, epic social media ponage, but just to be faithful to Christ and faithful to the gospel and let the Holy Spirit do his job. So, Stephen, one of my favorite passages I've shared before is Acts 17, where Paul walks into Athens and says, oh, I see you have many idols and you have many gods and you have one to the unknown God. And let me tell you about this God who you don't know, but you have this, these instincts about. And they had this great discussion. And then it said they were going to talk to him later. And they probably had lots of discussions. You know, that's the neutral world. And the mistake I see today is a lot of Christians see things coming from the negative world and assume it's coming from the neutral world. We see this, we've talked about wokeness or you want to talk about critical race theory, whatever. A lot of people see this as the neutral world. Oh, well, we can learn from this or this can be a bridge yeah, to the yeah. gospel. And it's like, no, because Paul didn't Queer treat, treasure. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> right. Oh, there's a oh, whole, here we go. There's a whole backstory <laughs> loaded into that. We are going to get to that. Keep going, Zach. Keep going. Yeah. And so, you know, you can't, um, you can't build bridges to religious zealots that are trying to destroy you, cancel you, persecute you, kill you. Yes, they will blow up the bridge. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, And so I I think that is where this, where discernment comes in handy. Because we've had plenty of TV shows like Lost, you know, we talked about the gospel according to Lost, the gospel according to Stranger Things. And like, that fad is kind of dying down because so much of the media now is very hostile to Christianity. So much so the gospel that, um, according to the handmaid's tale. Oh, yeah. oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, that that's kind of the point. Yeah. It is now, you know, so much so where I, I was reading a Andy Weir book, um, just about finished project Hail Mary. 
really excellent book. Hard oh, I love that fiction. one. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I was so surprised in this one chapter that he meets a positively portrayed Christian character. Uh, and I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm like, what's this guy going to do? What, what offensive or stupid thing is he going to say? Well, so far, nothing like so far. He's just this kind of quirky, interesting Christian character. And it made me think, I bet Andy Weir knows someone like this in real life. Cause that is the only explanation for why this character would be in there. And, and it very much is reminiscent of contact where there is uh, Matthew McConaughey's character, Palmer Joss, that also this positive Christian character in a, you know, book, a story written by an atheist. And because that was portraying someone that Carl Sagan knew in real life. But that struck me so much because I'm like, you don't see this very much in stories yeah. nowadays. And, so and now I, I want to go look that book up because I'm like, ooh, oh, oh, it's spotted it's, it's, in the wild. It's, a it's a really good one. It, it's a really good one. And, Andy Weir, of course, uh, the, um, the original the in, independent public, yeah, yeah, independent writer yeah, yeah. of The Martian uh, turned into the Ridley Scott movie, which is also really good. Um, I, I, I may have liked, as a book, I may have liked Project Hail Mary better. It's longer. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a little more complex. It's just his, his writing is just really matured. And there's a lot more speculative stuff in there. Uh, he basically has his own spice, you know, it's slices, it dices, it spices, it, he's got his magic substance, uh, light spoilers there. But interesting you bring up, uh, interesting you bring up uh, science fiction, Zach, because it, of all of the fantastical genres, uh, it occurs to me that sci-fi seems the most resistant uh, to some of the, the negative world uh, religions, particularly what I call sexualityism or the, you know, the race essentialism or any of these things. Yeah, yeah some sci-fi is very resistant. Uh, and in particular, sci-fi writers have directly opposed that sort of thing and then suffered for it. Uh, Orson Scott Card, for example, comes yeah. to mind. I, I wouldn't say, oh, that means Andy Weir is a cons- or conservative or a it's Christian. Christian. He's certainly, it's Christian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, of course, where that's from. Um, uh, that's from, uh, um, uh, what's his name? Ke- uh, Kevin McCreary. Kevin YouTube. Yeah, Kevin you know, he, yeah. He quotes it. I think it's from the Blimey Cow channel. Yeah, it's Christian. You know, that means it's sanctified. <laughs> we can use that. But this leads back to the neutral world idea because you actually see flare ups of the neutral world in books like that, which, uh-huh. by the way, starts off with an AI uh, asking our hero, what's two plus two? What's <laughs> two plus over and over, right? Okay. Now, some of y'all were keeping track of some of the literal, it wasn't a prank, was it, Bethel? This this social media conversation uh, not too long ago where yeah. people were actually challenging the answer to two plus yeah. two. D- different ways of knowing. Yeah, like yeah. they literally, yeah. they saw the Christian apologetics, uh, uh, you know, uh, epic pwn the atheist relativist material before. Like, well, you wouldn't say two plus two equals five, would you? And they thought, huh, let's try that. You know, like <laughs> stop giving them ideas. Uh, stories <laughs> like that only work when they're based on math and science and even the speculation and certain chemicals, you mix them with this and that here is going to happen unless you do so-and-so that only works in a world that you at least assume is neutral because at least the idea of the neutral world includes facts. They're a little bit more science oriented. And Bethel, that's where I want to ask you about this, um, this rise of what is sometimes called the intellectual dark web Although you, you claim to be of the light, you know, the dark side of the force has no place here. Yeah. You know, we, we fight for the light saber. side. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in, in, in this case, this seems to me to be a, a understandable and I think ultimately helpful pushback against the negative world. Uh, going back to this idea of like, no, we, we believe that truth is truth. Uh, we believe in science. Uh, we don't know about all this religious stuff, but you know, Christianity has been pretty jolly decent for society. That's the, uh, 
That's the viewpoint of the historian Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, of course, but uh, the historian, not superhero. Oh, that that threw Tom me Holland. way off when I first. Oh, it, it throws us off all like, the time. Well, yeah, it's a running it, Twitter joke. It is yeah. a running <laughs> Twitter joke. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, is everybody asking him whether uh, Toby and Andrew are going to be in his next movie? <laughs> um, Bethel, it, it, just any thoughts on on some of this um, this more atheistic, uh, more agnostic version of the neutral world where people are respecting Christians and there's a little bit more recognition that there is a true nasty force out there uh, that's trying to persecute Christians and conservatives and, and basic science unrighteously. That calls, I think, for discernment uh, for Christians who may be tempted to go, hey, it's Christian, you know. Uh, or who may think that Jordan Peterson, for example, is already a Christian as opposed to just being a very stubborn, uh, noble heathen type. That's so interesting because the, the intellectual dark web, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak about them in the past tense because... Yeah, you know, tell me about that. They, they, were, they had a good run, but the, the band broke up. I, I mean, it, there were internal tensions that, you know, they, they fought over Trump the election. COVID, oh, okay. See, I know, still like, had them in the present tense in my head, but obviously yeah, that means yeah, yeah. I'm not that's because, part of the band myself. That's because you're a Christian, Stephen. You're always behind. There you we gotta, go. Yeah. At least two years behind. Keep up with it. Yeah, exactly. got the exactly, corny so. intellectual dark web on a t-shirt, uh, you know, exactly. themed, yeah, themed no, after the Reese's Pieces logo or something. Two, two, three years out of date. Well, and also too, there was a kind of a, a funny bit of a white collar crime story there too, because they had a big time promoter um, who turned out to be an incompetent fraud. Uh, and that wasn't lost. the fire festival, was it? Um, no, it was, no, a, okay, okay. It was a guy named Pangburn, Travis Pangburn. He, he was the guy who set up the big arena debates between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris that oh, um, it caught okay. all that buzz. And I really watched my own small career, such as it is. But there was a brief moment. I think the Peterson-Harris debates were like the peak of it, where it's like they were on the cusp of doing something big and interesting. Um, but then, unfortunately, the, the guy organizing it just turned out that, that he'd run off with a lot of people's money and didn't know what he, how to keep anything together. Oh so it's so, not just bad evangelicals who do this sort of corrupt thing. It, it no. happens in the secular world too. Oh no, you just messed For with my sure. insularity. Tisk, tisk. Right. Exactly. So things imploded that then you, you had internal divisions and with, you know, with COVID certain figures like the Weinstein brothers who are, um, you know, these, these very like West coast maverick Jewish thinkers, Brett, and his wife in particular have had sort of a contrarian take on COVID pandemic stuff, but then other figures in that orbit are very COVID hawkish. And so there's been some, some Twitter food fights and stuff that have come out of all that. So it's, it's all a great big mess, but some of the figures I found most interesting were, were Peterson, who we've mentioned, and I like the Weinsteins as well. And Douglas Murray, whom I've uh, interacted with on unbelievable. He's the author and, of the madness of crowds, right? Yeah, uh, uh, he's written a bunch of stuff. Of course, being a fangirl, I've written everything he's ever written. Um, but that, yeah, that was that was one that kind of catapulted him into the, the consciousness for a lot of American readers. And, and these guys, like, they have all different backgrounds. Like, the, there's not just one um, background here. But I think what they're seeing and what you see with a, a lot of these kinds of shifting conversations is the sort of last rally of modernism, so to speak, where um, they see the, the encroachment of completely postmodern thought. So the two plus two equals five thing, and then the the biological version of that, which is the trans agenda, um, which is, is sort of two plus two equals five at the level of one's genitalia, right? So what you see is a lot of people who aren't Christian at all, who are wanting to stop and say, wait, wait, what's happening? What's, no, this isn't what I, 
this isn't what I pictured. You know, where where are we going? Stop this train. I want to well, get a- off. Andrew Sullivan is one of those. Yeah, and Andrew is a ver- really interesting guy along these lines because and I, I think I think the LG the whole LGBT thing, the whole sort of there's you know, this civil war going on between the LGB and the T. Um and you know, i I peek in on that on Twitter. But we don't want to talk about that. We don't. No. Oh. Well, actually we do, but some people don't. It's it's all the same community, right? I mean that the idea is that if it's all the same community, uh, then everybody's unified, but at least you're unified no. about what you're against. Yeah, no, no not really. No, no. no. Not nope. true at all. I mean, it's a bitter split, but I think it's it's similar. It's a similar kind of split because what you see is the old gay lobby is like, wait, but like men are men and women are women. That was the whole point. That was what we built the gay rights movement on is that men had a right to desire other men and women, other women. But if you erase the whole concept of sex and gender, then it it's like makes all of our work meaningless. So what are you doing? Um, but that there again, that there's the modern versus postmodern tension. So I think that's also what you see with new atheists circling back and like, oh, hey, Christian apologist who I used to debate with. Do you want to come on my channel and just like chat and talk about stuff? And, you know, like Mike, Michael Shermer does that kind of thing now. It's like, hey, let's just talk about wokeness, man. Because, I mean, <laughs> how about that wokeness? I hate it. You hate it, too. Oh, awesome. Yeah, it's, like Captain Ama- it's like Captain America <laughs> and Iron Man teaming up. You know, you, you've got you got this genius billionaire playboy ph- philanthropist who's kind of selfish. Playboy philanthropist. Yeah, exactly. And and then you got Captain America, you know, this, you know, God's right hand man from uh, the 1940s. And then, oh, they're suddenly allied when Thanos comes down. Right. And, and so it's, it's some of these atheist figures, because they know that we're a negative world, as, as you're saying, that they know that Christianity in some sense is sort of culturally inert, you know, so that like they don't have to worry anymore. And all of those, you know, the boogeymen that they were fighting against back at the Bush years, like, oh, Christianity is a, they're going to teach creationism at the public schools. They're going to outlaw abortion everywhere. They're going to do this and that and the other thing. Like none of that is remotely on the the radar now. It's like over. So they see that as like, okay, well, we we've been there, done that, won that cultural battle. But now the orcs are coming over the hill in the form of of trans activists and woke warriors. And I mean, these Christians are still around and they're not doing any harm. And in fact, we might be able to agree with them on stuff. So maybe we should think about how to do that. The most fascinating one I watched this was Richard Dawkins, who suddenly woke up one day right. and realized he's in negative world <laughs> when he had this uh, w- w- some kind of achievement award stripped away from him because it was he, the American Humanist, Humanist Association. Yes, yeah, because he, he made uh, he said something verboten on Twitter. Right, and he suddenly realized where he is. So this is the crazy reality in which we're in: is that Richard Dawkins and Ken Ham are now on the same side yeah <laughs> and at least in this regard uh and that that's a bit crazy yeah i like the orcs coming over the hill like suddenly the elves and the dwarves see reason to fight alongside one another right um but then the issue at, at this this goes back to something we were chatting about before we started rolling but i think there's a ceiling on the commonality that can be right. found there um so you know i love guys like douglas um i i enjoy guys like andrew these guys read my Substack, for which i'm very happy i hope they they get good things out of it but um you know i'm happy in my substat to poke at them you know to to critique them and maybe even roast them a little bit on occasion like i, I gave sullivan a free uh, subscription because i saw him lurking so i was like oh, okay well i'll just promote him so he can read all my paying stuff and then i wrote a post that kind of roasted his 
uh, you know, sort of limp mainline Catholic take on the resurrection. And um, another writer friend of mine said, I, I just think it's so funny that you gave Sullivan a free subscription that proceeded to absolutely roast him. And I said, well, I'm not, I'm not going to waste that opportunity, man. Um, so, uh, you know, I think, I think this is a great opportunity for Christians to say, okay, cool. I'm glad that you're sort of opening these lines of communication back up. But, but let's just sort of remind everybody here that our fundamental values are, are still actually pretty different. And maybe if it sort of gently suggest that there was some sense in which actually, yeah, there was kind of a through line from things that you said it did, that maybe you did sort of set the table with the knives that are now being used to stab you, you know? Um, yeah. But the answer is Jesus, y'all. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've my... noticed you saying that. And, and yeah. stepping back for a moment, if anybody's unfamiliar with Andrew Sullivan, I remember his name when he was the big gay activist. Right. He wanted civil unions. Uh, he ultimately wanted gay marriage, but then everybody else gets all excited and they're running ahead of him in the parade and they're getting into some stuff that not even he thinks they ought to be getting into. And right. suddenly he's going, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, and that doesn't make him a, a conservative. You know, he still believes in, you know, same sex marriage and, and that well, kind of He would of, call himself a conservative, but he's British. And so okay. well, these yeah, words it means don't different mean it. Yeah. things across the pond. Yes, exactly. I know what you mean. Yeah. And, and Bethel, yeah. that's what I, I, I think is, is the particular challenge for Christians who are engaging in a kind of neutral world. Uh, and, and I think that they've, they've, some of the Christian evangelical leader types and, and some Christian, uh, even creators of fiction seem to misunderstand where the neutral world is. It's gradually dawning on me here. Uh, it's not out there among uh, the people who are trying to change the laws and uh, you know enforce sexualityism as the religion of uh, of America effectively uh, just because they had problems with the church back home. And we just need to show them a kinder, gentler Christianity, and then they'll change. And that's the neutral world. No, the neutral world is these kind of conservative atheists and classic liberals and folks on the former intellectual dark web. Uh, including several, apparently, who are moving down here to where Zach and I live in Austin, and they're starting a University of Austin, this kind right. of this private higher learning attempt uh, that's not going to be conservative, but people are calling them conservative because they are anti-woke. You know, they, they're not on the far left. That's the neutral yeah. world. And so and they're I, not engaging that. And that, no, I mean, they're not. Yeah, that's, no, the, that's what's it's interesting it's, to me. It's frustrating. And, but, yeah, right. The, the reason they're not engaging that, though, is that a lot of these sort of should I say centrish? You know, these these sort of center left. Yeah, yeah. I, I I would say left curious. The term right. I use is left curious. Left curious centrish Eva types. Um, oh, even you know, they, they just, medium they, Eva. Yeah, medium. Okay, medium Eva. <laughs> um, you know, like they they sort of sniffed in Jordan Peterson's direction, and they were like, oh, I don't know. I read a thing that said he was kind of like weird and misogynistic or something. I'm not gonna. Really Trust, trusting the mainstream media to identify this yeah. rightfully. No, yeah. I mean that's not that's not true for right. That's not true for for everyone. I like I, right. I want to be. I, I don't want to lump everybody together here, but certain people like never even bothered to look into that. Um, like haven't haven't really bothered to look into IDW type culture just because uh, you know they they hear certain memes and buzzwords and they think ooh alt right ooh ooh you know this that and the other thing and they don't want to wade in and engage and make the necessary distinctions. But that's where I've found success and where I've had really interesting conversations. And it's like, nobody's talking to these people. And and I think there's something similar in um, the homosexuality discussion because a lot of people will 
like you, you say there, it's like, well, we just need to, the church has made so many, has been so mean and has made so many mistakes and we need to modify our language and, and do all of these things. And they wind up doing things that actually are not going to appeal to a large demographic of gays and lesbians out there. Um, you know, like, for example, oh, well, we need to show pronoun hospitality, pronoun hospitality. Mm. I, I don't know if you're familiar with that phrase, but, uh, yes. you know, you say they, them, we need, I'm, I'm like, ha ha ha. And I'm like looking at all the, the people I, I follow, you know, gays and lesbians who are just absolutely merciless about the pronouns and bioculture. Oh, no, this toxic person blocked me, pronouns and bio. So, I mean, <laughs> I have seen like, that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, um, you're not going to engage those people. They're just going to laugh at you too. So, you know, there's this whole kind of dead zone of engagement here. You know, that whole attitude reveals a strategy, which someone put into very stark terms that I I read this morning, which is if your idea is we have to make ourselves so beautiful that the world will will pursue us in like the old seeker friendly impulse. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about getting people saved or else their blood's on your head. And I, and I, I don't say this in a, in a mean way, but that is basically a, a classical feminist or a feminine mindset, right? Like it, just in, in the classic sense of nurture? That, no, I mean, in terms of the, the pursued and the pursuer. So, mm, you know, the, mm-hmm. just the classic understanding that the masculine pursues, the feminine is pursued, that we have to wait around for the world to notice us or, or to find us interesting and attractive and want to rather than we go out into the world. Like Jesus said, go into the world. And yes, let your light shine before men, but but go and and people will hate you. <laughs> and that's just part of it. Like it, it again, it's nothing has really changed since then. There was an interesting debate where this happened about, you know, some of these ideas about about race and, and critical theory. And uh th- this person complained like, why are why are all of you Christians following uh, you know, and and what atheists think about this? Why are you why are you conservative Christians so latched onto these atheists that you know are anti woke or whatever? And I'm like, and I turn around, I, I looked at this person, I'm like, um, you're following other atheists that that believe the other way. So mm-hmm. so then I then I tried to make this joke and it kind of flopped. But I'm like, I proposed an atheist swap TV show where <laughs> where wow. a progr- where a progressive Christian has Fantasy to hang out with. Uh, with James Lindsay, and then be, and eventually by the end of season one has to confess their wokeness, and then a conservative Christian hangs out with Ibram Kendi, and then by the end confesses his privilege, and then they talk to each other and find out what they learned. You know, it, it was just like a stupid joke, and then, but actually, I sent it to James Lindsay, and he laughed at it. He thought it was hilarious. Oh, and, that would uh, be perfect. And, and that's, that's the advantage funny. of some of these guys is is they they can laugh, you know, to a fault sometimes, yeah. but they can laugh, and it seems that they are more willing to laugh at themselves. Uh, meanwhile, you see that the negative world forces that we'll talk about more in a moment, they do not laugh. They cannot laugh. Uh, They fall victim to G.K. Chesterton's maxim that angels fly because they take themselves lightly, but Satan Mm. fell by force of gravity. And I see that in your engagement too. Yeah, it it is. So Chesterton. (laughs) I see that too in in your engagements, uh, Bethel, at least so far. And please keep doing this. You're not falling for the trap of going, yay, I found some atheists. I found some non-Christians who like me and will talk with me and who will welcome me into their Mm. club and I can welcome them into mine. You don't stop there. I see your tweets where you say, wow, like this recent article I wrote just blew up. Uh, thanks for all the followers. 
y'all need Jesus. Yes, that's my thing. <laughs> yes. That's that, my brand. And that brand. needs to yeah. continue being not just your brand, but your call as a Christian commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. We follow not just the cultural mandate of going out there and making good things and influencing people. No. Yes, can I tell you a funny story about yes, that? Yes, please. Go okay, for okay. it. Okay, so um, a while ago, I realized that a, a, a woman named Penny Lane, who had directed a, a documentary about Satanism or something, was following me. Uh, I don't know how she found me, you know, presumably some of my intellectual dark web stuff. But so I did one of my regular y'all need Jesus tweets and she tweeted, she's like, well, I don't. <laughs> and I, I was like, well, oh, she, she already got him. Yeah. Right. Right. So I was like, well, I mean, yes, yes, you do. And she's like, well, 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 I just, I just, you know, we had a little, little bit of a back and forth and, you know, come to find out a couple hours later, <laughs> she wasn't following me anymore. So, oh. you know, <laughs> That was that for for Penny Lane, which is her her real name apparently. Um, mm. So that, <laughs> that that was just a funny thing. But yeah, that's that's um, I I'm not shy about that. I'm also not shy about saying, you know, like I, I think Douglas Murray has some pretty weak arguments. I mean, like he, he and Andrew tried to build this whole you know conservative case for gay marriage or whatever, and which I think is bunk, you know. And, and I'll say that. But the refreshing thing is that they'll be like. Okay, you you think what I said is black? Okay, but they they like individuality. They like the fact that that you're secure and comfortable in your own position because because then that's something they can contend with. That's something they can have an argument with. They can have an engagement with. Otherwise, they're just not really going to respect you. Yeah, Zach, this is a very um, Lewis idea, and I think one of the best ideas of the better kind of of academia is. Uh, this idea of engaging ideas altogether, whereas in the screw tape letters, for example, the demons do not work by trying to put false ideas into people's heads, but simply by distracting them from the good ideas. You don't have to argue with the human who suddenly wonders, wow, is the material world all that there is by saying, yes, the material world is all that there is. And here's a bunch of philosophy quotes that you remember that'll prove this. Instead, the demon just says, Hey, I think it's about time for lunch. You know, yes. you get them out in the real world where all those philosophy questions in the museum just don't seem relevant anymore. Uh, and that, that's why I think increasingly what we see is people who are not engaging with this stuff on the level of the mind or the imagination, but are just getting distracted. Uh, and that distraction may be a greater poison than even wokeism. Uh, it just is assumed by default uh, rather than intellectually argued. So, of course, there's plenty of overlap, as we mentioned, but from there, let's go into chapter three proper of our discussion. Have we entered the negative world and what does that change for us as Christians? Uh, from here, I, I want to tip my hand a little bit as to the reason why we're talking about this on Fantastical Truth. I see a lot of Christian-made novels that seem to be made for the positive world or the neutral world. I don't see very many that are made not to send out into the negative world as if to change their minds. Because as we've talked about, distraction is a problem. Uh, this, this religion is a problem. Like People's minds are not going to be changed so easily unless, of course, the Holy Spirit is working. In that case, they probably need somebody in their life whom the Holy Spirit can use. A book, however well-written or fantastical, is not going to cut it. I think we need more stories that acknowledge the realities of the negative world this dark world into which we are called to shine a light. And I think we need to enjoy and create these stories to train one another, to recognize how bad it really is out there and how often bad it is in here, because Christians and our institutions can be very corrupt politically and otherwise. We've got abuse. We've got all kinds of nastiness. 
But in contrast to this perceived need, I, I see more people still trying to engage with the positive world. You know, people will will really believe in Jesus, you know, if, if you just show them that he loves them. And some of this are more the older style Christian novels, like some of the romances and some of the more shallow fantasies I've read. Uh, and then others will just act kind of neutral. But we're not in a neutral world now. Uh, you look out in the world beyond the problems in the church or professional ministry, uh, and then especially this year, you see people, I think, righteously indignant that it's not just bad political ideas, but active pornography and religious sexualityism being taught. Yes, being taught and That's not so grooming. much directly taught, but assumed behind the teachings in public schools. And some parents, not all Christians, but are going to the public schools and they are raising heck over it, uh, most recently in Virginia. And I think that kind of gives the lie to this assumption that, well, if Christians are just really, really good, and if we weren't so shallow and we weren't so withdrawn into our subcultures, then we could really make a difference in the mm -hmm. world with our stories and we could get our movies out there and we could get TV shows. I think that can happen, but it's, it's, it's yeah. not going to happen because that's, that's neutral world thinking there. Okay. I, again, I'm not going to name names here, but I, I was asked once on Twitter because I was talking about exactly what you're discussing with the situation in public schools and, and how insane it is. And so I was asked, um, well, why don't you go teach in a public school since it seems really important to you and you tweet a lot about it? Maybe you should let go where you can actually try and make a difference. And that's, I said, that's naive. I think that's naive. I, I know. I, I said, I have absolutely no illusions that I would be able to make a difference if I even tried to take that route, which is, is practically not feasible for me anyway. But like, um, if, if I had like for the beginning set my sights on that, I would have walked into that situation and promptly realized I had no power to do anything, you know, because these things are decided at the, at the administrative level and they trickle down. Um, and I have compassion for teachers in those scenarios. I think there are a lot of uh, really good, solid teachers with integrity who are probably tearing their hair out now and really care deeply about their kids, but just don't know what to do because they're caught in the middle of this. Um, and too many Christians are in that cocoon, that bubble, as you say. And, you know, maybe they, they have loved ones who teach in a you know, little town where their school doesn't have that kind of stuff. But, you know, then when I'll retweet Chris Rufo or, or somebody like that, I'll say, hey, look at all this, this garbage. Then they'll say, oh, well, you're just like retweeting a secondhand troll account or whatever. But I like have firsthand experience. And I'm like, okay, say what you want about Chris Rufo, but he has a lot of primary sources. I mean, that's sort of his thing. It's like, all right, we're going to lay out exactly what this yeah. book is, page by page, exactly what these training materials are. Here it is. Boom. And he'll just dump it. So um, there's such there's such naivete there. Th that's a good example, too, because every time you bring up those corporate trainings or, you know, educational programs, equity initiatives, whatever, people will immediately argue with you. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, or that's not this, you know, don't call it that. It's not that. And well, and, and that's actually part of it. Like this whole new movement, whatever you want to call this ideological zealotry, it is based very much on language control. And so it's always a battle of definitions. It's always a battle of words. I just challenge people. Well, okay. Read, like you said, read through those primary sources and tell me what you agree with and tell me what you disagree with. And you tell me what to call the things that you disagree with, and then we can go from there. But, you know, th this is also a function, I think, of the negative world, Stephen, is that 
Um, evil doesn't move in by calling itself evil. Evil moves in by calling itself good. And that's, we see that all throughout the Bible and we see that all throughout history. You know, as Christians, yes, we should want to shine a light and we should want to shine a light to Jesus and we want to love our enemies. But sometimes that light is like, like the high beams on a car or like one of those like mag light, you know, LEDs. And, and, and it might not be pleasant to shine that light. I saw this tweet yesterday where someone said, Christians today, some petty local council passes in an ordinance to close churches. We must obey. But Paul in Acts 16, 35 through 40, you think you can violate my Roman rights, jail me, and expect me to be grateful for release? Get the magistrate to, to escort me out of prison himself. There, there. Yeah. Do our Bibles have the book of Acts? Now, it's not commanded that every Christian does this, but the fact that this is included as an example, the Apostle Paul rightfully responding to persecution, not just running away, uh, right. not just saying, oh, good, that'll clean out the bad Christians from among us, you know, that, that naivete <laughs> about persecution. You know, this is about my story. No, it's not. It's about everyone's story. And the Apostle Paul's story should also be included. And the Apostle Paul would stand up for his rights as a Roman citizen under Caesar, uh, who has ultimate authority over the local magistrate, just as in America, the U.S. Constitution has more authority than your local health board or your state governor or your mayor or somebody. And, and this is the difference of Lex Rex or Rex Lex, right? Do, do you believe that the law is king or that the king is the law? You know. The point of Paul in that story is that he shined a light on them. He showed them, hey, you're breaking your own law. This is what he does in the book of Romans, too. He says to those who were born without the law, they actually know what the law is. Like They know in their hearts what right and wrong is, and they know they don't stand up to it. And when you point to that, you can point people to the gospel. And, and so, yes, that's what we have to do sometimes in the negative world is we have to point to fundamental principles that we should all agree on and say, hey, this thing that you're pushing, this defies what we all agree on that society should be or what, what truth is or what reality is. And that may be a really unpleasant conversation, but sometimes that's the starting point to get to the gospel. Sometimes you have to start with the bad news to get to the good news. And you have to, you have to point out the sickness first. Um, you, you can't just attract people to a solution or to a cure that they think they don't need. They have to see that this negative world is, is killing them. It's polluting their soul to be able to want something better than that. Well, it comes from polluted souls and souls that have been polluted by sin. Uh, we are all apart from Christ dead in transgressions and sins. And I, I see the assumption being made by, by certain kinds of well-meaning Christian leaders, Christian creatives, um, who seem to assume that the main reason or the only reason I can deal with anyway, the main reason the sin got there is because the church didn't do its job. Yeah. Well, maybe yep. in your story, the church didn't do its job and there may be real issues with the church back home. But this is why I call it the church back home syndrome. You do not take that experience that you have had and impose that on everyone else and then see everything else going on in the world as a language to express your story. The story is not about you. Uh, your your neighbor down the road, you know, may be hurting, may be traumatized, and they may even have bad experiences with the church, but not always. That person may just be a sinner who believes in a false religion, and you will do that person no favors by pretending like they're just going to be neutral and they just need to see uh, Jesus more and they need to see uh, the church condemning this bad political corruption or whatever. Uh, these people really need to see the church condemning sin 
and pointing to Christ. And that sin can take many forms, not just a result of something bad that the church back home once did. Yes. And then maybe those people would go ahead and, um, and rebel and deconvert anyway, because original sin is a thing, y'all. It um, is. Sinner's going to sin. This is the, the thing I keep coming back to. Is, this is the, the individual soul. And um, to pull in my, my sort of apologetics angle on this, um, this, is, this is something I would say to people in the Christian apologist space, too, is that I, I think um, there was a big marketing push, which I understood, but a big push to parents. Like, okay, kids are leaving the church. Here's the, the scary Pew Research stats. Here's the scary polls about how many young people will leave the church by the time they get done with college or whatever. Um, so here's what you can do to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, buy, buy this book. Get this DVD set, this resource, whatever so that you can have like all, all the answers in place to make sure your kids won't be the kids who leave the faith. Um, and this was, this was well-intentioned, you know, it was well-meant, and it sold a lot of books, so, you know, I understand it. But um, unfortunately, I think it set a lot of parents up for a lot of heartbreak um, because, you know, as the tsunami wave came in, as, you know, as the negative world era swept in, there were a lot of parents who did all the right things and the kids still walked away from the faith. So now they're left thinking, what, what did I do wrong? Was it mm. me? What happened? Did I not buy the right book? Did I, you know, and it's like, no, no, you, you really didn't do anything wrong. It's just, this just happens. It always will happen. Bethel, I have a theory there just hot off of the brain. I think that a lot of folks making those materials meant very well, but they committed two strategic errors. The first, I think, is an error of experiential projection or whatever the actual thoughtful people want to call that, where, well, I grew up in a Christian family and I sure would have liked this kind of material about how to engage popular culture growing up because all I got was a lot of rules. Uh, I wasn't allowed to watch PG-13 movies. I wasn't allowed to listen to this music. And man, that would have really helped back then failing to see the irony that somehow, despite all those bad rules, which are unbiblical, the person still turned out to be faithful Christian uh, enough to make it so far in professional ministry that they would want to release a material about how Christians ought to better engage popular culture. Uh, that's, that's failure number one, is that, you know, the Holy Spirit can work despite those nasty rules. I think failure number two was an overinvestment in these levels at the level of, uh, in these materials at the level of nonfiction. It was all nonfiction, nonfiction, nonfiction. And then yeah. largely, as Zach and I saw in our recent conversation with Daniel Silliman at Christianity Today, the big hit Christian fiction novels are largely all in the past. I'd say there's one notable exception today, and it's probably the musician, singer-songwriter, fantasy novelist Andrew Peterson. We may be on the cusp of a renaissance there with not just him, but a lot of the authors that we talk to here. But in that case, it's a recovery. Uh, everybody back then was getting into apologetics at the head level and not so much the heart level. But now you are seeing some people correct and realize, wait a minute, like we, we need also great stories. We need to invest and take risks in sponsoring these kinds of stories. But that won't work so well if the stories are still mostly a throwback for a cozier Christian world, like even some fantasy can fall in this trap of acting like this is a story for the positive world where you just need to realize that your identity is in Jesus and he loves you very much and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, thanks, but that doesn't match my reality. Uh, even a more neutral world story doesn't match my reality. And, and those kinds of stories, I'm not saying we need to you know, send them out like missionaries uh, into the negative world or get them into the school libraries. That's not going to happen. 
I'm just saying, can Christians start swapping these kinds of stories amongst ourselves? Because it's got to start closer to home before we have any hope of actually breaking into this space where you've got porn on the high school library shelves. Yeah. Well, uh, so shout out to a friend of mine on Twitter who talks about this a lot. Uh, Vocal Distance, another secret identity of some really great guy. He was was great when I I cloaked. He was like, wait. You're Tim McGrew's daughter? Yeah. Oh my gosh, my worlds are colliding. I love <laughs> Tim's stuff. And so I, it, there, yeah. I've had a few fun moments like that. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he's a great guy, really into apologetics, um, not just about all this wokeness stuff, but just he, he really sees how we are living in the postmodern world. And Stephen, to your point about the, the tactical error of a lot of these apologetics that parents have given their kids that have just kind of missed the mark because they were written in a, in a modern world. And now kids are in this postmodern world in uh, vocal distance has this epic thread about this. I'll, I'll link to this in the show notes. Yes. I saw that thread and I, I yeah. retweeted and liked it because that I thought was it was true. One. So I have a yeah. question you guys, because I'm working, I'm, I'm, I have to write something over the weekend for first things that I promised them like two weeks ago, because this is the freelance writer life. But so there's this new um, uh, sort of mini biopic thing that just dropped about CS Lewis and his conversion mm-hmm. uh, from Max McLean's the most re- group. Most reluctant convert, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's really fun. It's really nicely done. Um, and so it's gotten me thinking about C.S. Lewis's conversion journey and then sort of the, the path that he charted out. And it really kind of gets to what we're discussing here because he began with apologetic material and moved, then moved into fiction yes. and fantasy, which is what he's best... Well, I mean, really, he's loved and remembered for work across the spectrum because he was just really gifted in, in multiple areas. But I would say Narnia probably had the most lasting cultural impact, the biggest cultural footprint. Um, and I think he, sh- he pivoted in that way because he had the same insight that you've had here. It's like, okay, I, writing books like Miracles or Mere Christianity is good and needed, but I need to do something else as well um, because this alone is not going to reach where I, I want to reach. But do you think that something like Narnia could um, get off the ground today? Because, I mean, do you think Lewis's popularity and success was to some extent a function of the the age in which he lived? I think so. Uh, we've, we've actually talked about this a few times uh, in, in noting that we're not looking for, as, as Christian fantasy fans, I don't think we ought to look for the next C.S. Lewis. He was a product of his time and yet timeless at the same time. But Lewis came out of a culture that was shaped by two world wars. He fought in the first and he was a Christian pundit during the second. Unless you have that kind of earth shattering event that kind of puts everything in perspective and kind of heads off some of the, we're building a better paradise and we just need justice and all this. And then suddenly, you know, the Nazis are knocking their tanks at your door and you realize you have bigger problems to deal with. That was Lewis's context, and, and of course, Tolkien's as well, and lots of other writers that came out of that tradition. Um, we're not there. Uh, I don't think even if you had someone you know, transported from the 40s, you know, frozen in ice like Captain America, uh, who then woke up and decided to write some new fantasy today, like, it might do pretty well because they had the education that a lot of people now do not have. It may seem kind of different, but I don't think it would be capable of engaging this kind of negative world. I mean, Lewis would be absolutely shocked. And I don't know, like, okay, what if Lewis tried to write Narnia in a world where people are literally encouraging the legal mutilation of children? Like, how can you write a story like that for that world? 
uh, it calls for very different kind of thinking. Uh, and, and that's why we're talking mainly about the fans here, I think, because we're not talking about, hey, you authors out there, go do this. You know, that's that's top down thinking. I'm trying to think more from the grassroots up. Building what, a market. Exactly. What kind of stories are we going to expect? Are we going to expect another story about the strong female character who just needs to learn to believe in Jesus and then believe in herself and then save the world? Um, I don't think that kind of story acknowledges the negative world. There's a place for those stories. I'm not going to be legalistic or assume they need to be all dark and discouraging before they're bright again. But I think if you expect to make a difference in, in, in the church, in equipping us to be disciples for the world into which Jesus has called us to serve, I think we need tougher stories. I think we need well, a, 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 more a, robust stories. Go for it. Yeah. Okay. So let me plug something I was plugging before we started recording. But um, there's a Catholic writer who, and he's he's not like like a great writer. I he, his his writing kind of needs a, a firmer editorial hand. Um, but his name is Michael D. O'Brien, and he's actually Canadian. But he does that sort of negative world storytelling really, really well. Um, and so his, I, I would especially recommend his trilogy called The Children of the Last Days. So it, it's, about, it's about a family, the Christian family, who's just trying to, you know, raise their kids in the admonition of the Lord in a Catholic way because he's Catholic. Um, but then you have an encroaching government, you have persecution and, you know, like, and it, it was written around 2000, I think. Um, so it's really actually rather prescient because I, I think unless I misremember it, but I think these novels were written during the neutral phase, but they were like predicting the negative phase. Oh, wow. Um, mm. Yeah, in, in lots of really kind of freakishly accurate ways. Um, so then this father and his kids go on the run, and it, it's just this epic saga with all kinds of characters and good versus evil. And I mean, it is it's very gritty. Um, you know, it's it's not for really young readers. and uh, But it's it's so good. So Strangers and Sojourners, then Plague Journal, then Eclipse of the Sun is the finale. There, there you go. That, there's my book plug. And I, it is interesting to maybe explore if there's anything that Protestants could learn from Catholics here. Rod Dreher is a really interesting figure mm-hmm. in all of this, beginning as a Catholic and then becoming disillusioned with Catholicism and moving to Eastern Orthodoxy. But like I, I listened to a podcast recently where it, it was Dreher and uh, Michael Brendan Doherty from National Review. And then their host, Kale Zeldin, who's himself a Catholic, and they were like comparing like Catholic Orthodox dad notes, you know, like how can we prepare our children in a negative world? You know, like how can we uh, nurture their imaginations? How can we, you know, prepare them to keep the faith and all that stuff? And I'm sitting here as a Protestant and I'm thinking, I mean, I'm a Protestant, but we're all pretty much on the, the same page here. So I think this is a place for some ecumenical brainstorming here. Yeah, I, I think I'm really looking for some fiction that tackles this. And, you know, back back to that thread by Vocal Distance, he talks about the the main struggle of young people today is meaning. You know, they're they're asking questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Where did we come from? What's the purpose of life? How should we live? What will become of us? So yeah, I I think those are very different questions than what C.S. Lewis was asking. Those are different questions than what Tim Keller you know, was asking in his youth or whatever. Um, so I, I think the questions, you know, the answer doesn't change necessarily, but the questions change. And so we, we have to look at what the questions are and, and show how the Bible still has the answers to those questions. And meaning, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, it was interesting that Woko focused on that because then that, I mean, that was Jordan Peterson's keyword 
Yeah. Right. Um, meaning, okay, well, maybe you're not exactly sure if God exists or, you know, this, that, or the other thing, but what you can do is you can find meaning in your life in the here and now. You could do something to improve yourself right now, which, you know, had a self-help flavor, of course, but it went a lot deeper than self-help too. Um, so then, you know, Peterson said that can be sort of your gyroscope. Where, where's the meaning? Where's the meaning? Follow that. That's at least a start. And of course, Peterson doesn't really know how to finish, which yeah. people have, have written lots and lots about. But um, that was interesting. I don't think Wokel mentioned Peterson in the thread, but Peterson comes in and really dovetails with it, I think. Yeah. Well, and, and that's because what is causing this negative world, at least according to Wokel, is postmodernism. And there, there, we've talked about deconstruction and it's really deconversion and it's, it's this nihilism, it's this pessimism, it's this cynicism. You know, I always joke that I'm a cynical Gen X, but I, I ain't got nothing on the cynicism of today. And so that is what is forming this negative world and it's what's harming people. And so we have to really have a love for people that are being like destroyed by this and, and a bold love that points them to a better way. And, and like I said, sometimes that starts with a bright light of truth on it and then yeah. we can, and then we can show them, look, you know, th this is not the world you're meant for. Well, that's I mean, what, what you just said right there about the cynicism and the nihilism. I mean, that's what was galvanizing Peterson. That, that's what, what launched his whole project is that he saw a generation being lost to nihilistic cynicism. And so he wanted to sort of catch them as they fell, so to speak. And so, you know, really his whole project is against cynicism. It's, it's, a, it's a trying to create men with chests, like, like Lewis wrote about it, The Abolition of Man. Um, and I think he succeeded about as well as, as a guy who doesn't, who isn't ultimately being guided by Christianity could do. Now we just have to figure out, okay, how do we get him over the, the hump? Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's just not over the hump, but through the stable door to borrow the, the image from yes. the last right. battle. Uh, yes. Peterson yes. and others on, on this intellectual side uh, this anti-woke side, they remind me of honest, noble, heathen Kalormans. Uh, yeah, who, who like Emmeth, so. yeah, who who worship Tash, you know, who may be ultimately worshiping a false god, uh, but who still managed to hang on to some virtue. And this is a medieval idea that Lewis picked up on, and, and of course, it's brought accusations that he's a universalist or an inclusivist, which I don't think are true in the last battle. It certainly was not true for him. But yes, I have least, so many thoughts. That's yeah, right? the whole thing. Well, yeah. poor Doctor, our, <laughs> our episode about that, the top seven yeah. myths of Narnia, or something like that, that was one of them. Uh, but uh, you still got to go through the stable door. Um, uh, Emmeth may be a good guy. He wants to go in there. He wants to see his God. Uh, he is earnest. He's not cynical. He's not distracted. He's devoted. He's noble, but he still needs to be met by Aslan in the stable. Aslan needs to say him, son, thou art welcome. And then Emmeth's response is not, I knew it all along. Like I was in the faith all along. Uh, Aslan, uh, he's, he's instead, uh, moved to a kind of repentance, you know, like, oh, I've, I've, I've missed this beautiful, wondrous lion in the neighboring country all along. Like I should have known better. Aslan welcomes him though. It's almost a little Calvinist, you know, like you, you, it's, it's amethyst predestined, you know, and then is brought to repentance. That's how I read it's that. It's interesting you should say that because I think Lewis's vision is a pretty Arminian one. Oh, he That's is. a whole thing. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, Lewis, I think had some, had some mistaken views of, of, of the doctrines of grace, but they managed to get into the story anyway. And that's just the point. These good ideas, this beauty, uh, this this uh, this constructive idea, 
gets into stories via the imagination. Uh, they're sneaky that way. And that's why we, you know, it's great to shine a light on uh, old books and nonfiction and classic literature. Uh, you can illuminate a lot of truth that way. But you also need to shine the light through a prism and see the spectrum of color uh, that only comes through stories and myth-making and fantasy and all of that. That's why we're so into that and fantastical truth. Uh, that's why we've got truth in the podcast there. This is about truth. But it's not just about entertainment. It's not about another kind of distraction, trying to escape from the real world. Uh, we want to be instead be discipled by these stories. I do call them discipleship tools, even if they're not conversion tools. The best kinds of stories will awaken us to this reality and equip us to face it, whether it's a positive world where we're living uh, or a more neutral world where ultimately I think is uh, receding into the past or the more negative world that is surrounding us. And Bethel, I'm glad that you are of the positive world, uh, but going into these neutral and negative spaces. And uh, as we draw to a close, you said you're writing for first things. Do you want to tell us a little bit what that's about or anything else that's coming up for you uh, before telling us uh, where to find you on the Twitters and socials and such? Yeah. So if I can pull that together, I was, I was sort of going to piggyback off this, the success of that new Lewis film and, you know, sort of write about, okay, how is, how is Lewis apt for today, you know, sort of like reading Lewis in a postmodern age kind of thing. Um, and then maybe I'm thinking I might pull Peterson in. I mean, I only have a thousand words or so. They, they really, they cut me down at these, these outlets. I can't ramble as long as I want to. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think I, I may sort of look at Lewis's path to conversion as a classic modern conversion story. And then the, the ways that a figure like Peterson has been compared with Lewis and ask like whether it's possible for somebody like Peterson to make a journey like Lewis's today. Um, so it's a little scattered, you know, these sorts of things usually get hammered out around two in the morning, you know, so we'll, we'll see. Uh, so I want to work on that. I've, I've got other things I'm working on. Um, I have a, a, an article coming out in a journal called Icon, which is the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood outfit. So I was, I was writing about the, um, yeah, I was writing about the Revoice Conference, and so, you know, getting there, into... There's the queer treasure topic. There's the uh, queer treasure stuff. Yep, yeah, mm -hmm. the stuff we kind of touched on earlier. So I have things I want to write about in that whole vein as well. I might finally update my Pathios blog with some stuff in that vein. So, yep, I always have about 50 different things I want to write, and then I only end up writing maybe five of them. So this is how it goes. This is the freelance writer with a day job life. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, you're in both math and English, which is uh, which is an intriguing possibility there. You are of both worlds there as well. So in you're on way. you're on Twitter at at your uh, old uh, nom de plume uh, at yeah, Esther uh, O'Reilly. Well, it's actually um, at Esther of Riley. The Esther of Riley. Yeah, there we go. So, but this this is cooler because it makes it sound like there's a House of Riley or something. Yes. Um, so it's like so, yeah, House I mean, of Trades. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So so it's kind of a joke because so because my first name Bethel is uh, is Hebrew. So I thought, okay, well, I'll pick Esther. That's a Hebrew name that for the first name, then for the last name, my real name is McGrew. So I thought, well, I'll pick something kind of that's Scottish. I'll pick something Irish, Riley. So it was like a little joke for myself for all these years. Um, this is sort of an interesting parallel. But so now that now that I've come out as Scottish, I've been trying to post a little bit of Scottish content here and there. So I'll, you know, drop some Alistair Begg sermons 
at random, that kind of thing. Play <laughs> some bagpipes, all the stereotypes. For sure. Well, I'm glad you got your Chariots diversity quotas clips. filled anyway. And it's been great to have you here. I look forward to having you back. Uh, we'll include, of course, all those links in the show notes. Follow her on Twitter, Esther of Riley. Lots of good stuff. Uh, you may even jump into a few uh, of the conversations that Zach and I have. Uh, not not being part of the intellectual light web, I think that's a little too aspirational. Uh, but we're light web curious. I think we can say that much. So thank you so much for joining us as uh, Esther. I wanted to say <laughs> Esther. I keep calling you that. No, Bethel. Bethel. That's your real name. Yeah, yeah. It's not Batman. It's Bruce Wayne. That's how it works. So Godspeed uh, to you as you head back into these uh, intellectual frontiers. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Stephen, that was really awesome having Bethel on the show. I mean, it was just such a fun conversation to have with her, getting to talk in real time and not just in you know Twitter comments or whatever. I am really curious now in this whole intellectual dark web, what they read as fiction, what kind of novels that they promote and what really connects with them and their views of the world and what, what you, our listener, find connects with this negative world that we find ourselves in. Or, or are you hanging on to the books from the... Uh, positive or neutral world, you know, we'd love to hear about that. So send us a note, but let's go over here to the comp station here from Caleb who wrote to us after our last episode about Dune and other fandoms. And Caleb said, quote, I'm so glad you guys finally discovered Dune. I've been a fan of the film since the eighties, reread the first book at least once, but never finished the series. This was a great episode. When you started talking about non-Christian authored fandoms with Christian themes, I was certain that you would read my letter from September about Orson Scott Card as it was closely on this theme. Keep up the good work. End quote. Yeah, once upon a time, we could keep track of all of the <laughs> fantastic feedback we got in response to podcast episodes. But now it's a good problem to have. Uh, some things are starting to slip through the cracks. Like, I think this is when we get big and forget our humble origins <laughs> or whatever. God forbid. God forbid. Caleb, I appreciate that gentle reminder and your encouragement about Dune. Uh, Zach, per your question a moment ago, I think that Dune may qualify as the kind of stories favored by uh, these, uh, you know, not conservative, but kind of classic liberal atheist types. Like I, I mentioned earlier, uh, actually about Orson Scott Card, or maybe even the author of Dune, and you mentioned Project Hail Mary from Andy Weir. I wouldn't say these are conservative or you know much less Christian creators. Like Orson Scott Card may get closer because he's part of the, shall we call it a Christianity spinoff of Mormonism or the Latter-day Saints community. But these stories are at least in their tone. They are conservative in terms of trying to uphold humanity or challenge humanity, uh, upholding certain human virtues. In Dune, you've got the Gulm Jabbar test that is administered to Paul at the beginning, very famous, and now the source of more memes. This is a test to prove his humanity. An animal will recoil from pain and maybe even gnaw off uh, his own paw in order to get away from it. But a human will bear up under the pain. That's the idea of this test. Uh, that's kind of this classic humanist sci-fi trope. And I think great stories can reflect that and at least get closer, not to Christianity necessarily, but to what Zach has called this kind of pre-evangelism status, uh, this more neutral take on things that at least favors honest humanity uh, and honest inquiry, you know, intellectual engagement one with another rather than just trying to follow after a trend or being so obsessed with your own identity or sexuality that you don't care to engage with their fellow humans. So in September, Caleb wrote to us about Orson Scott Card and said, quote, I'm wondering if you've read Card's novels or the novels of Christian adjacent 
worldviews like Mormons. In particular, I wonder if you have an opinion about the Alvin Maker series and what fantastical truth it reveals. I was very intrigued by the themes of how makers are the light that fights back the darkness of the unmaker, end quote. Well, Caleb, um, I've only read uh, Ender's Game, but I do have the next three books in that series on my bookshelf waiting for me to read them. Uh, for some reason, I, I just kind of got this sense earlier this year that Orson Scott Card's going to get canceled or something. And so I'm like, you know what? I want to go buy his books uh, because he's getting this negative press. But I also really like the guy. Like I've listened to some interviews with him. Uh, I resonate with a lot of things he talks about. I loved Ender's Game. Uh, I'm excited to read the others. Now, this um, Alvin Maker series looks like that's a fantasy. I haven't read those. Uh, so I, I'm not familiar with that. The only comment I could leave here is that it it does remind me of the never-ending story, how the the villain in that is the nothing and that the way the nothing is fought back against is by bastion giving a name to the princess who doesn't have a name yet and so some similar themes there of uh of evil just unraveling things and unmaking things and and but the way to combat it is through creating and so you know i I've, i know nothing about the worldview of the never-ending story but um Stephen, have you read uh, the Alvin Maker books or other Orson Scott Card books? I have not. I was today years old when I heard about them. Uh, maybe that's okay. because I'm a sheltered Christian and evangelical. I'm not <laughs> sure. I, I certainly have read uh, Ender's Game, although like you, Zach, I've not read the rest of that series. And I'm only marginally familiar with uh, Orson Scott Card's uh, creations. Uh, I, I'm interested, too, in in the, the issue here of the novels of Christian-adjacent worldviews, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. Mormon. I think that's a really gentle way to say that. Um, we would need to get into a whole other episode about, uh, you know, Mormon neighbors, uh, and, uh, how they view storytelling. It, it seems to be that Orson Scott Card and several other creators happen to share a background in Mormonism and, and mm-hmm. this somehow leads them to write and create more fantasy and science fiction. Stephanie Meyer of the Twilight series Infamy, uh, I think it, at least has been associated with, uh, with the Mormon religion. Uh, Scott Card uh, definitely professes that, but there's several other writers. Uh, of course, Battlestar Galactica, as I understand, the original That's one I was thinking had some of. Mormon origins. Yeah, and, and well, and, and the, the, uh, the remake, w- yeah, the remake by Ronald D. Moore, I believe he's uh, LDS. Okay, uh, and then uh, who was the other name I was thinking of? Oh, is Brandon, that author? Brandon Sanderson. Brandon Sanderson, yeah, of course. Yeah, and yeah. then there's a lesser-known author named Zena Henderson, which kind of <laughs> sounds like it's rhyming with Brandon Sanderson, uh, but. Uh, Mormonism uh, understood just to be very clear uh, in terms of biblical Christianity is, is not the same uh, religion as the gospel religion. In fact, that's how it got started. So you want to respect, you know, a, another religion by trying to engage with it as an honorable, different religion. You know, the idea going back to the 19th century was uh, a very common one when someone starts a new religious group as all oh, the church has gotten away from the basics, but I'm going to get this special revelation uh, and then I'm going to go off and start my own thing. Well, there may be a time when you need to do some reformation of the church, like, you know, the reformation, but that doesn't mean uh, that your niche religious movement is it. Uh, It may be a spinoff. It may be more of a Christian adjacent worldview. I think in terms of respecting people's stories and forming creative alliances, uh, professional alliances, there's nothing wrong with being good neighbors uh, with with Mormons. Uh, This could lead to a longer episode. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, you know, we're all Christians together and we just have different understandings, uh, understandings of things uh, that that could lead to some very questionable territory. We want to respect our differences one with another, even as we respect our shared uh, participation in the image of God. Yeah, I can see Brandon Sanderson's 
Mormonism play a role in the end, uh, the last three books of the Wheel of Time that he took over after Robert Jordan died. Um, there's a few specific doctrines in Mormonism that I, I could see reflected a little bit in the main character. Um, and then I could, I could see those a little bit in his Steelheart series, which I love, which is like a, uh, a series about superheroes being the villains. Like everyone that gets a superpower becomes a villain. And so it's the normies that have to fight back against the superheroes is really cool. That's probably a whole other episode, but, um, when you study Mormonism and and you can kind of see the similarities and differences, it is, it is kind of fascinating to see how those get reflected in their fiction. Um, I, you know, I have not read Brandon Sanderson's way of Kings. Again, those are sitting on my shelf waiting, waiting to be read. I, I look forward to reading those, but that, yes, that would be an interesting thing to analyze and see how that, how their faith plays a role in their creativity. Well, if you, our listener, has read these Orson Scott Card or Brandon Sanderson books, uh, the the fantasy books, and you can see where the connections lie, or you want to respond to Caleb here in, in a better way than we're able to, because uh, since we have read Alvin Maker, uh, please send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com. Or if you have any thoughts about this episode with Bethel, the intellectual dark web, the books that you think reflect these different eras, or even just, like I said, the ideas of Jordan Peterson and others, you know, let us know those books, uh, podcasts at lorehaven.com or tag us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Just look for Lorehaven. Yeah. It's about being good neighbors with creators who share our values. Uh, as Bethel joked earlier, we don't want to throw up our hands and go, it's Christian, you know, just cause like, you know, <laughs> Harry Potter dies to save his friends. Like lots of mythological figures, past, present, and future are going to die to save their friends, but only one Jesus Christ is real. And every other archetype like that is descended from him. Don't get stuck on the reflections. They're not the same as Jesus. They just may remind us about Jesus. And we need to go to the source, to Jesus Christ himself personally. Next on Fantastical Truth, speaking of which, we have hinted at it. You've asked about it. But now we're finally doing it. The Harry Potter episode. Uh, first one, anyway. Uh, we're timing this one very closely with the 20-year anniversary of the release of the first film, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's, <clears throat> excuse me, the Philosopher's Stone. For some of you purists there, particularly in England, where the book is known as the Philosopher's Stone, yeah. another fan of the Potterverse is going to join us to explore the wizarding world decades after J.K. Rowling creatively conjured it. We will explore the pros and the cons, and of course, a little bit about that controversial magic going on over there. Meanwhile, whether you prefer to engage in a positive world where most folks are friendly toward Christianity, or you prefer to engage in a more neutral world where people are just okay with Christianity, or maybe if you're starting to wake up and realize that the world around you has gone more negative, whether positive, neutral, or negative, Jesus Christ should be our positive ally. We are about him. We're about worshiping him, not just engaging with the world. Any engagement we do must be for his glory alone as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. <laughs>